So we're going to continue our study of the book of Ephesians this morning. You can turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. If you need a Bible, uh, put your hand in the air and the guys will bring a Bible to you so you can follow along with us. You know, as I was uh, pondering our study here in the book of Ephesians, I realized that, you know, as we move into chapter 4, we're we're about ready to turn a corner in in this book. Uh, it, it all it, it seems that all of chapter four and beyond really kind of hinges off the statement that that Paul writes here in in chapter four verse one. I want to look at that verse first. It says, "I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called." And so walk worthy of his calling is the title of the message. However, I, I want to jump ahead in the, the text for just a moment to set the context for what we're going to be looking at today. If you look at verse 15 of chapter 4, it says, But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. And uh, Paul is going to be giving instruction Two believers on what it means to walk worthy of the calling of being a Christian or being in Christ. And this, this means that, that we would be taking our direction from Jesus, that he would be the head of the church or the head of our lives individually as Christians. And he would be giving us direction. And so we would be taking that direction from him as our head. And as I was thinking about this, I, I was thinking about a man that I actually watch on TV pretty regular as I watch Fox News. I, there's a guy named Charles Krauthammer that, that frequently is a guest on Fox News. And, uh, you know, he's a brilliant man, has some brilliant ideas about, you know, our current political system and such. And, and uh, you might be wondering, well, why him? Why, why would you think of him when it comes to a biblical text? Well, if you aren't aware of this, he's a quadriplegic. Um, they, they don't really show his wheelchair much while he's sitting there, but, but the reality is he is a quadriplegic and, and he always, he hasn't always been that way. And, and I, I, I kind of got interested in him, uh, one day and decided to do a little research on his life. And, um, this is his story. He, he was finishing up his first year in medical school. He's 22 years old. He, he was tall, he was strong, he was athletic. This particular day, he had actually skipped class with one of his, one of his uh, classmates, and they went and played a game of tennis, and they, they were actually headed back to school, and they decided to stop and jump in a swimming pool to cool off. And uh, 
that particular day when he dove in the pool, he hit his head. And, and when he describes it, he said, you know, I didn't even hit my head hard enough to, to make a cut on my head. But he hit it in just a precise way that it snapped the vertebrae in his spine. And he obviously was crippled. And he says the ironic thing is, is that the book that was sitting on the side of the pool that they were studying that day in class was all about spinal cords and and his got snapped. And and so. If you were to ask. Charles to list all of the physical problems that he has in his life. Uh, associated with becoming a, a quadriplegic, the list would be long. Uh, many people who are in that condition will struggle with respiratory issues, uh, severe pain, skin sores, bladder infections, muscle spasms, brittle bones. And, and so the, the list would be something like that, and it would be pretty lengthy. But the reality is, all of these are just symptoms. They're not the problem. They're symptoms of the bigger problem. And the bigger problem is, is that his body is no longer communicating with his brain. Uh, his brain sends signals, but the nerves are damaged, so the signals never make it to the body. And, and so all of the other things that he contends with are just symptoms of the fact that that is his reality now as a quadriplegic. And, and so I tell you his story to illustrate what has happened to the church or the body of Christ, as it's referred to in the scripture. If you study the church that's recorded for us in the book of Acts, you'll see that the church is strong, it's energetic, it's thriving, it's growing, it, it's in fact a powerful witness to the society around it. And we see that throughout the book of Acts. But if you look at the church today, we see that something definitely has happened to stop that kind of effect from being around on our community. Uh, if you listen to the experts who who look in, and, and try to study these things, if if you look at them, you'll find all kinds of explanations for what is going on and what's wrong. They'll say we're either too old fashioned or we compromise too much to the modern culture. We're either too big to be personal or we're too small to meet all of the individual needs that are in our midst. We are too formal on one hand or we're too casual on the other hand. We either aren't doing enough outreach or we're doing so much outreach that we lose the idea and the aspect of fellowship. And again, this is why I mentioned Charles Krauthammer's story. He no doubt has a long list of symptoms, yet they're just symptoms. If, if we look at the real problem, it's that connection between the brain and the body. And this is the problem with the church today. All of that other stuff that people are studying are just symptoms of the real problem. The real problem is, is we have stopped taking our instructions from Jesus, who the Bible tells us is the head of the church. And for us as individual Christians is the head of our, uh, our lives today. And so 
Anything else we look at is just really treating symptoms and not the problem. Well, Paul, in our text today, is going to tell us how we can stay connected to Jesus and and have a healthy church or, um, you know, understanding that a healthy church is made up of healthy Christians, people who have a healthy relationship with the Lord. Now, we have to realize that in chapter 4 of Ephesians, we're halfway through the book, and it, it really marks a transition in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. As, as we move into these next chapters, we go from doctrine to duty. We go from uh, wealth to walk, from riches to responsibility, and from uh, spiritual doctrine to practical living. And, and so as, as we approach the text, we have to remember the structure of the letter to the Ephesians. Remember, the first three chapters that we've already looked at all deal with all of the, the personal realities of what it means to have Jesus in our life as a Christian. All the benefits spiritually, all of the wealth that is associated with our lives as Christians. I'm not talking about dollars. I'm just talking about the spiritual wealth that has been deposited into our account. And, and so we, we look at those chapters as the positioning of the Christian. And then from chapter 4 to 6, he deals with our response. What should our response be to all that, that the Lord has done for us? In other words, the Apostle Paul instructs and equips this church in Ephesus about how much God has done for them. And then he begins to tell them how their life should look because of that and what the, the proper response would be to what he's done. So what should our response be to him? Or, or how should what he has done affect my life as a believer? Now, if you weren't here for the study of chapter 1 to 3, I, I encourage you to go to our website. You can listen to those messages and, and take in those studies so you'll understand what has been done. But now Paul is going to show us the natural response that a, a man or a woman who truly understands the teachings of the first three chapters, uh, the, the response and the changes that should be made in our lives. Verse 1 is foundational for all the, the teachings from here on out in this letter. Paul urges us as believers with the understanding of all the glorious details of everything that God has done for us to live a life that is worthy of his calling. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read in the Bible where the instruction is to live my life worthy of the Lord or his calling, it alarms me. It's not the only place in the scripture that he tells us that. In fact, I'll read a few places to you in First Corinthians or in Philippians. I mean, Philippians 1:27, Paul wrote, "Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together." For the faith of the gospel. Then to the Colossian church in Colossians 1.10, he wrote uh, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being f uh, fruitful in every good work, 
increasing in the knowledge of God. To the church in Thessalonica, he wrote this in 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So he tells us to conduct ourselves in a worthy manner, to walk worthy, to walk worthy. And then in 1 Peter, Peter tops it off with this. In chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, he says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Twice in those two verses, he he tells us to be holy like God is holy. Now, that alarms me because I know myself very well. I know that I'm not a holy person. I know that I'm not a righteous person. And so when I read those instructions... It it heightens my awareness that God is asking something of me that I can't produce in myself. I can't make myself holy. I can't make myself righteous. And and so it, it really is speaking to the pursuit of my life. I am going to fail, but but when I fail I need to get back up and continue to pursue him with my life. And and it really does speak to desire and we we should desire to get it right 100% of the time. Even with our current failure rate, we should strive to live that worthy life or that holy life and make Jesus our pursuit. If we understand Paul's teaching thus far in the letter, we'll know that our striving for protection doesn't, or perfection doesn't save us. It's by grace and grace alone that we're saved, through faith. It it has nothing to do with our performance. So the performance is because of what he has done for us. We want to change the direction of our life because he has saved us. Salvation is all about his grace. That was settled for us back in chapter 2. It's not our ability, but it's Jesus' work on the cross that saves us. However, now, in response to him and his grace working in our lives, we should desire to please him with every choice that we make 100% of the time. So often, we look at our inability to do that, and we focus on our failure, and we just settle for a mediocre Christian life. We just say, you know what? I'm never going to get it, so I'm just going to I'm just going to exist the way I exist. People just have to take me the way I am. You know, as for the importance of seeking excellence, John Maxwell shares a startling statistic about some research that he did. If 99.9% is good enough, then 2 million documents will be lost by the IRS this year. Hopefully it's your hopefully it's your tax return, right? Twenty two thousand checks will be deducted from wrong bank accounts in the next sixty minutes. Thirteen hundred and fourteen telephone calls will be misplaced by telecommunication services every minute. Twelve babies will be given to wrong parents each day. Over five and a half cases of soft drinks will be produced in the next 12 months that will be flatter than a bad tire. 20,000 incorrect drug prescriptions will be written in the next 12 months. All, if 99.9% is good enough. 
So we need to strive for perfection. To strive to live a life that is pleasing to our God. And we need to strive to do that 100% of the time. We may not achieve perfection. I, I can pretty much guarantee you, I'm looking at you right now. I'm, I'm saying it ain't going to happen. But, but that should be our goal. We should strive for that. After all, if, if we as Christians are going to impact the world around us, this dark world that we live in, then our lives need to shine the glory of Jesus. And so Paul urges us to live this type of life, but he also knows that it comes better with some instruction on how to do it. Now, an important thing to note, everything that I'm going to read from here on out um, are things that we are supposed to strive to do as a believer in Jesus Christ. It's written to people who are already Christians. If, if you joined us today and you are not a, a Christian, you are not going to be able to put these attributes into your life and make yourself acceptable to God. This is a list for people who are already born again, already saved. And, and so if you're not a Christian, God's not going to require these demands of you in order for you to be saved. Salvation comes by grace and grace alone, by faith in Jesus Christ, believing that when he died on the cross, his death paid the price for your sin. That's where salvation comes from. And, and so you have to be a believer in Jesus to uh, possess the power to make the changes that Paul is going to list for us in this letter and and to have these characteristics a part of your life. And so... I'm going to be giving you an opportunity at the end of this message to ask Jesus to be your Savior. You can be thinking about that and pondering it as we go through the rest of this. What follows in this letter is for us who would already declare ourselves to be a Christian, followers of Jesus, those of us who are redeemed. You see, J. Vernon McGee says it like this, dead men cannot walk no matter how insistently they are urged to walk. The dead man must be must first be made alive. So you can't expect somebody who is dead spiritually to have spiritual attributes a part of their life. And, and so Paul has already written that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. And, and this is the condition of all who are lost. Now, you, you could get the sergeant major of the army with all of his command presence and his command voice, walk into a cemetery and say, Attach, hut, forward, march. Nobody's going to march. They're all dead. Doesn't matter how commanding he is. Doesn't matter what authority he says it with. Dead people don't march. They would have to come to life before they could march. And so... This text is for those of us who are already alive in Christ. For those of you who haven't received Christ, you'll have that opportunity in just a few moments. Let's read ahead. Verse 2. With all lowliness and gentleness and with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as we are called to one hope of your calling, 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And so these attributes, he says, are to be part of a life in Christ. A life worthy of his calling will be marked with these attributes. The first one, he says, with lowliness or humility and gentleness. In other words, to live the life that Jesus lived and that he modeled for us. He he was the role model for living in humility. In fact, in, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30, Jesus His words are recorded as this. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly or humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, when Jesus spoke these words, he was speaking to Pharisees. These were people who were striving to be religious by their own actions. And, and obviously they can't because none of us can make ourselves righteous because of our own actions. We, we can't do enough good things to erase one sin from our life. And, and many of us have multiple sins to contend with. And so, so he's speaking to these who have been doing all of these religious actions. And he says, hey, come to me if you're weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in spirit. And and so Jesus is saying, you know what? If, If we want to learn what it means to follow him, we need to learn from his example. And and the attributes that we see in him, we should desire to have as a part of our own life. Jesus was gentle. He was humble. He was meek, not weak. I mean, that that means power under control. Jesus has the whole world in his hand. That's the power he has. But yet he laid down his life for our sin. That's meekness. Power under control. Notice that Jesus never told us to become religious people but he encourages us to learn from his example. His life, if you study the life of Jesus, he was the most selfless person that ever lived, the most other-centered in his life. Everything was for the benefit of somebody else. And and, and that was the role model that we have today as Christians, to to make our lives other-centered, to uh, have less of an opinion about ourselves and a higher uh, esteeming of other people around us. Now, even though Jesus had every right to be prideful, I mean, he's the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe. If anybody had a right to think highly of himself, it would have been Jesus. And yet he chose humility and he humbled himself to become a servant. In fact, in Philippians 2, Paul wrote this. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant 
and coming in the likeness of men. So Jesus, in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, chose to come as a bondservant. That that means he was a servant by choice. He chose to come in service. His love for people, his gentle approach, is what gave people a reason to look to his heavenly Father. And so we as Christians, striving to walk worthy of his calling, need to learn these attributes from Jesus and to live in humility and gentleness with the people around us. I read a story of a a young man who was a seminary student in England and and you know this this was a kid who was well studied, he was well spoken and and just seemed to have everything going for him and and uh, one of the pastors of a large church there in England was was sick and needed somebody to come and and substitute for him and and to preach the message and so this this young man was asked and he came uh, to the church and he came and he approached this with so much pride about his ability to preach. And when he walked up on stage and he looked at the people, he got stage fright. Now, in his arrogance, he had memorized his sermon to impress the people. He was going to not use any notes and, and he was just going to preach this thing from memory. Well, as he got stage fright, he forgot the message. And so he just kind of stumbled his way through this message. And a dear Scottish lady went up to him afterwards, and this is what she said. Young man, I was watching you this morning, and I'd like to say that if you had gone up into that pulpit like you came out of that pulpit, then you would have come down out of the pulpit like you went up into the pulpit. (laughs) You see, he went up in pride and he came down in humility. Oh, how we need humility in our lives. Humility, gentleness, as well as the next characteristics that are listed for us in order to grow together in a group uh, of believers in unity. Dwight Pentecost tells the story of a, a serious church split that had taken place the two sides of these people that were all one church at one time were so mad at each other that a lawsuit developed one side against the other to try to dispossess the other people from all the equipment in the church. Completely disregarding the biblical instruction that Christians aren't supposed to sue other Christians, they went to court and the civil court threw out the case. And so it ended up back in the church to decide, and and a church court was set up where it belonged. Those overseeing the matter made their decision, and they ordered one group. uh, They awarded this group the, the possessions of the church, and the others were not. And so those who lost withdrew, and they formed their own church in the same town. However, in the course of the hearings and listening to all that had transpired, the church court found that the conflict actually began at a church dinner. It stemmed from a time when one of the elders sitting at that church dinner received a smaller portion of ham than a child. 
that was sitting next to him. And so the root of the standoff was an absence of patience and forbearing love, not to mention humility and gentleness. It was self-centered. Arrogance led to the split, the opposite of Paul's instruction about the life of the believer, gentleness, humility. And next he says, uh, long-suffering or bearing with one another. Long-suffering, that's an interesting word. Uh, it's the same word that we would get for patience. It means having a patient attitude when people don't seem to be doing what we think they should be doing. You know, this this doesn't come very natural to us, patience. But the reality is we have to realize that God isn't finished with them yet. And that's what makes them do the things they do. They're a work in progress, just like you are. You ever notice how easy it is to criticize somebody and their sin when... They're wearing your sin. It looks ugly on other people. When we see somebody doing what we do, we can't believe they would do it. I mean, this shows up in our driving all the time. You're driving down the freeway and somebody cuts you off and you just flip out. And you're like, how in the world could that person not see me? And then a little while down the road, you cut somebody off inadvertently. You do it by accident and you think they should be understanding. I mean, you just made a mistake, you know, so why are they getting so mad at me? But but it looks uglier when somebody else does it. That, that's our nature. When we see somebody doing something that we struggle with, we get angry. We get mad. We We also look at people and we get upset with them for things that are still a weakness in our own life. We get frustrated. Or, or maybe you finally get a handle on something and, and you get it out of your life and now you feel real superior about it and you wonder why other people still struggle with it. Former smokers are the worst. I mean, you, you finally get delivered from smoking and, and you see somebody smoking a cigarette and you're like, how disgusting. How can that person put that into their body? And, and that's the reaction we have. Paul says here, patience, bearing with one another. Now, you may be asking, well, how do I make myself patient with people? Well, I can tell you how you don't do it. You don't just grab yourself by the shirt and say, all right, I'm going to be patient now. That's probably not the way to do it. Paul told the Galatians that, Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, it lists the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And so we look at those attributes and we say, well, those are the things that we're supposed to desire to be a part of our life, but I can't make those things happen in my life. And so if, if you find yourself lacking any of these traits and, and you're not patient with people, it should be a warning sign to you that there's some distance between you and the Holy Spirit in your life because the fruit of the Holy Spirit being actively a part of your life is that you will have patience. 
with other people. We, we need humility, gentleness, patience, and we need the Holy Spirit to work those things into us. Yeah, we pursue it, but it's coming through his power in our life to actually bring it about. And so we have these attributes, and then we're able to enjoy the characteristics that Paul gives us next. Endeavoring to keep unity through peace. You know, in the last chapter, we read about unity and how every believer doesn't have to come into the same building to worship in order to have unity. There are different styles that people are gravitated towards. Some are casual, some are more formal, and, and, and all of that's okay. We don't have to be in the same building to have unity. We somehow equate unity with being exactly the same. Webster says this about unity, the quality or state of not being multiple, but oneness. It means having the same purpose. It doesn't mean being identical. It doesn't mean being exactly alike. It just means going toward the same purpose with the same goals and understanding. So even though we're different in our personalities, we can be unified in our purpose for living. And the unity Paul speaks of and that God desires, he says, is the unity of the spirit. It's spiritual unity, not necessarily structural or even denominational. We have unity because what we share in common, one body, one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father. Each one of these common areas are greater than any potential difference that we would have. One body. This refers to all of the Christians from the birth of the church at Pentecost all the way through the rapture of the church, whenever that will happen. All believers fit into that group. One body. One church. Might meet in different locations, but we're all one body. This this is how it's interesting to me because I've traveled around the world and gone and met up with different groups. You you can go into Mexico. We just had a group go in Friday and Saturday and and do some work down in in uh, in Mexico. And as soon as you arrive, you already have something in common in Christ, and you you, you have that ability to get along. We've gone to Russia. As soon as you meet up with the people in Russia that are followers of Jesus, you have something in common. Even though our cultures are completely different, you have that that common interest in Jesus that brings you together. The same for Uganda. Uh, We just had a team go to Uganda. They spent like 20 days on an airplane. I don't know, it was forever on an airplane. And, And when they got there, as soon as they walked in, They had something in common, and they hit it off with these folks. Next year, when we go to the Philippines, it'll be the same way. You just you have that common interest in Jesus, and it brings unity. We're one body. And and then he says, one spirit. The same Holy Spirit is working in me that's working in you. He's convicting us of sin. He's gifting us to be able to work together. Our calling as a church is to reach the lost with the gospel message. 
And, and when we're focused on our calling, we, we work together in unity to bring that about. Now, I, I just want to stop for a moment and talk about last week. Last week when we had our, our 9-11 service, I, I just want to commend you as a church. Dave Hanna, the guy from New York that was speaking, he, he stayed with me for a while, and, and I talked with him, and he said, you know, I've been to 9-11 commemorations for 15 years in New York. I've never been to anything like you guys did here. And, and that wasn't a, a testament or a testimony of the service and, and the flow of the service. It was a statement about you as a church. In fact, when I left here and I was talking with my wife, I, I told her, you know, I, I was blessed by the whole service. Everything flowed. It was wonderful. But the biggest blessing for me as the pastor of this church was to look out there and see three-quarters of our church serving people, working together with one common purpose, to glorify the Lord. And that that's what made the day remarkable. And that that is what we're supposed to be doing, is all of us serving according to our calling so that the Lord can be glorified. And And he was. Then he says, one hope of our calling. You know, there's not going to be any avoiding each other in heaven. You're going to be with people that are saved for an eternity. So if you have a problem, it's best to try to resolve it now. And, you know, obviously we're only one end of the problem, so you can only do the best you can to resolve something. But, But we should put our best foot forward to resolve anything we can so that eternity will be pleasant with that person. In light of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, all the stuff that splinters us now will ultimately get resolved because there's one Lord. Our focus will be on Jesus Christ, not our differences. You know, there's an illustration we use in marriage counseling, and if both people in the relationship are moving toward Jesus then they're going to be getting closer together. And, and they're going to be, you know, experiencing that oneness in a greater degree by focusing on Jesus. But when I'm self-centered, then there's going to be more distance between me and that other person. Well, it doesn't only work in marriage. It works in church life as well. That, that we have one Lord. If we're focused on him, it's going to draw us closer together. And, and make us more able to work together. One faith. This refers to the, the central truth called the Apostles' Doctrine. In Acts 2.42, it says, And they continued steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. The Apostles' Doctrine, what, what was the Apostles' Doctrine? Well, um, not many roads lead to God. It was... Jesus Christ and him alone. In fact, Jesus' own words, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Now, Jesus was either the only way or he was a lunatic because he died for that statement. And, and so most people wouldn't classify Jesus a lunatic. Well, he, he either has to be one or the other. And, and so the doctrine that the apostles promoted was there's one way to heaven through Jesus Christ. It's by grace through faith in him. One faith. 
Not many different faiths. One faith in Jesus Christ is what saves. One baptism. We, we share the same experience of water baptism, the, that outward sign of the faith that we have uh, placed in Jesus Christ. That's that symbol of dying to the old life and, and raising to new life as we come out of the water. We all experience that same experience. And lastly, he says, one God and Father. Every believer is a child of God. We're brothers from another mother, but we have one father, and that's God. And so, in all of these attributes, we see the preservation of unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This should be the diligent and constant concern for all of us as believers today. And so Paul makes it clear, this unity of the Spirit is working in the lives of believers. Uh, it doesn't come from external source. This is an internal work that the Spirit does in us that brings about these changes. He gives us the power to change. Yeah, there's this combination that, that we don't fully understand of our effort and his power, but it brings about that change in us. And it's manifest through those inner qualities of humility and gentleness, patience, that forbearing love. And so, Christian, as you sense the need to walk worthy of his calling, you need to recognize it can only be done through the power of his Holy Spirit working in you. There's a compelling need for us to strive for it, but knowing it only comes from him. We have to stay connected to the head in order for it to play out in our lives. The closer you press into Jesus, the more you are able to walk worthy of his calling. The more you walk worthy of his calling, the more unity you're going to experience with other believers We need to stay connected to him, the head of the church, to function the way he's designed us to function. And so, Christian, those are our marching orders as believers. But if you're not a Christian, I told you, you're not going to be able to pull that off on your own. But you can you can change that with a decision today. You can recognize what the Bible says that you have sinned and it separated you from God. Every horrible decision you've ever made can be forgiven by placing faith in Jesus Christ and believing what he did on the cross was sufficient payment for your sin. And the Bible says if we believe that with our heart and we confess it with our mouth that we'll be born again, a new creation in Christ, the old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. I'm going to give you that opportunity here in just a moment to pray and to ask Jesus to be your Savior. Please consider that and respond to him as he calls you today. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the instruction that it gives to us who are believers. Lord, we know in and of ourselves we can't make ourselves worthy 
of the calling. But we know that as a work of your spirit, you can bring these characteristics alive in us. Help us not to grow weary in well-doing, but, Lord, to seek after you, to press into you, and, Lord, allow you to make these changes in us. May we as individuals reflect your glory. May we as a church continue to shine that light brightly in our community and beyond. Lord, we thank you for the work you're doing in our midst. May you continue that work in us, Lord. And God, if there's any among us today that that need to make that step to receive salvation, I pray, Lord, that you would draw to yourself even as we pray. I just want to give you that opportunity right now to pray and to ask Jesus to be your Savior so that you can know today that you're born again, that your sin is forgiven, the hope of heaven and eternity. That's you. Put your hand up in the air so I can see it. I'll lead you in a prayer. I won't be bashful. Lord, we're blessed to know our position in Christ. Lord, may we live now and reflect that in all that we do. May you receive the glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.